My name is Kevan Davani, the Total Connector, and this is the first part of a series of articles which I published on medium.com slash at Davani. My previous articles can be listened to on soundcloud.com slash Davani. Part 1. Why Bitcoin, Bitcoin Reality versus Central Banks? The Monetary Evolution for Humanity. Prelude. I could have never imagined in my life that one day I would be analyzing and elaborating on the structural and criminal aspects of the global central banks and its controlled fractionalized reserve banking systems in bed with the governments worldwide. Yet, however hard I tried my research, there seems to be no matching description for the crimes and chain reaction of damages committed to humanity by the monetary centralized banking cartels, which could be subsumed under an existing criminal and punishable offense. This, this jurisprudential work is not only a fundamental taboo-breaking enlightenment of knowledge and comprehension. And just a short notice, strictly recommended and indispensable reading, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Mastering Bitcoin, Programming the Open Blockchain, 2017, or Safedan Amur's The Bitcoin Standard, The Decentralized Alternative to Central Banking, 2018. Humanity has finally the one and only logical, effective, and ethical solution to the deeply rooted causes of so much unimaginable human suffering, pain, wars, inequality, exploitation, poverty, standstill of scientific technological development and evolution, and modern slavery. Science and technology, specifically computer processing soft and hardware, for example microchips, internet, distributed peer-to-peer, -peer, compressed data transfer, cryptography, blockchain, and much more have evolved with an unbelievable rate of speed in the last few years and decades. There are no coincidences. Humanity is finally at the precipice of an evolutionary leap maturing into a totally transformational society and global civilization with holistic intelligence, comprehension, knowledge, intellect, spirituality, knowledge, science, and technology even beyond the doctrine and dogmas of false or outdated assumptions, which we humans humbly need to get over with. Since childhood, we all have been more or less brainwashed and indoctrinated with an unnatural intellectual, emotional mindset and behavioral conditioning as to never question the theories, models, and structures with which we have been force-fed through family, society, media, and the compartmentalized educational institutions. The more we grow up to become a socially acceptable member of society, we tend to forget the really essential questions which free-minded children usually ask their parents. Why? Other questions such as cui bono, who benefits, are stigmatized as shameful, disgraceful, respectless, guilt-loaded taboo questions. With the understanding of the essence, purpose, and transformational monetary architecture of Bitcoin, humanity 
has no other choice than to ask exactly these questions. Why? Cui bono? For the first time in human history, we can free ourselves from the so-called mysterious shackles of the privately owned central banking controlled and manipulated slavery. Posing the question of who benefits is even forbidden, especially with respect to the internationally dominating U.S. central bank, the privately owned and occult Federal Reserve System, and its legal monopoly of the U.S. dollar money supply, unless if you want to be smeared and marginalized as a conspiracy theorist. Yet, the centralization, secrecy, and the political-legal untouchability culminates in the privately owned and controlled Bank for International Settlements, BIS, later to be discussed in detail or to be read in my articles on medium.com slash at Kevandavani or listen can be heard on soundcloud.com slash Kevandavani. Bitcoin with its absolute scarcity of 21 million coins to be mined in totality until the year 2140 and its difficulty adjustment for the prevention of inflation is already the reality of the truth of our evolving totally decentralized, censorship-resistant, open, borderless, immutable, and trustless, meaning not a single intermediary, network consensus civilization, with the freedom of a monetary value structure of Austrian economics based on the hardest money, store of value, medium of exchange, and fungible unit of account. Who would have ever thought that the di digital, cryptographic, and peer-to-peer -peer cash on a globally distributed ledger, the blockchain, could one day become more precious than the relative scarce gold? Why? It always depends on the invested time, resources, and applied technology which make the mining of gold relatively difficult, which make its production limited, and its long-term value relatively more stable than silver. It is no surprise that every monetary unit we are or used to be familiar with, the dollar, the pound, the mark, the franc, and many others began on the market simply as names for different units of weight of gold and silver. What is inflation, in truth? If you or I had the technical possibility to print more fiat cash money, meaning dollar or euro or whatever, or to generate more of our digital fiat money in our bank accounts and centralized database ledgers of the various banks worldwide, we would be swiftly arrested, prosecuted, and thrown into jail for counterfeiting. Yet, this is exactly what the central banking structures with their so-called fractional reserve banking system are doing by order of magnitude. You guessed it right. It does not stop here. The reality of the damages and consequential chain reaction of damages is beyond the imagination of most people. A spectrum of criminal acts of scale, but not limited to theft, embezzlement, fraud, corruption, mass murder, fabricated wars, 
money laundering, trafficking of drugs and children, etc., etc., all by the order of magnitude. Let us, for the sake of a simple comprehension of inflation, quote Rothbard, famous Austrian economist, the mystery of banking. To put it in another way, quoting Rothbard, to put it in another way, a continuing sustained inflation, that is, a persistent rise in overall prices, can either be the result of a persistent continuing fall in the supply of most or all goods and services, or of a continuing rise in the supply of money. Since we know that in today's world, the supply of most goods and services rises then falls each year, and since we know also that the money supply keeps rising substantially every year, then it should be crystal clear that increases in the supply of money, not any sort of problems from the supply side, are the fundamental cause of our chronic and accelerating problem of inflation. Despite the currently fashionable supply-side economists, inflation is a demand-side, more specifically monetary or money supply, rather than a supply-side problem. Prices are continually being pulled up by increases in the quantity of money, and hence of the monetary demand for products. Unquote. Rothbard's understanding and analysis that the world of micro and macroeconomics are not two mysteriously separate worlds is explained in a very clear language to be comprehended by every human being, which is unfortunately not even taught to economic students. Quote, but when they get to the macro chapters, lo and behold, supply and demand build on individual persons and the choices disappear, and they hear instead of such mysterious and ill-defined concepts as velocity of circulation, total transactions, and gross national product. Where are the supply and demand concepts when it comes to overall prices? In truth, overall prices are determined by supply, by similar supply and demand forces that determine the prices of individual products. An increase in the supply of money then will lower the price or purchasing power of the dollar and thereby increase the level of prices. A fall in the money supply will do the opposite, lowering prices and thereby increasing the purchasing power of each dollar. So prices overall can change for only two reasons. If the supply of money increases, mo prices will rise. If the supply falls, prices will fall. If the demand for money increases, prices will fall. If the demand for money declines, prices will rise. The purchasing power of the dollar varies inversely with the supply of dollars and directly with the demand. Overall prices are determined by the same supply and demand forces we are all familiar with in individual prices. Micro and macro are not mysteriously separate worlds. They are both plain economics 
and governed by the same laws. Unquote. Henry Hazlitt, in his book Economics in One Lesson from 1946, is one of the few gifted economists who can make a seven-year-old child understand the stupid and catastrophic fallacies caused by the voodoo economics of so-called Keynesianism and company. Let us focus on inflation with Hazlitt's words. Quote, Before we consider what the consequences of inflation are in specific cases, we should consider what its consequences are in general. Even prior to that, it seems desirable to ask why inflation has been constantly resorted to, why it has had an immemorial popular appeal, and why its siren music has tempted one nation after another down the path to economic disaster. There is a second group, less naive, who see that if the whole thing were as easy as that the government could solve all our problems merely by printing money, so inflation turns out to be merely one example of our central lesson. It may indeed bring benefits for a short time to favored groups, but only at the expense of others. And in the long run, it brings disastrous consequences to the whole community. Even a relatively mild inflation distorts the structure of production. It leads to the overexpansion of some industries at the expense of others. This involves a misapplication and waste of capital. It is impossible, moreover, to control the value of money under inflation. For, as we have seen, the causation is never a merely mechanical one. You cannot, for example, say in advance that a 100% increase in the quantity of money will mean a 50% fall in the value of the monetary unit. The value of money as we have seen, depends upon the subjective valuations of the people who hold it. And those valuations do not solely on the quantity and those valuations do not depend solely on the quantity of it that each person holds. That they depend also on the quality of the money. All this explains why, when superinflation has once set in, the value of the monetary unit drops at a far faster rate than the quantity of money either is or can be increased. When this stage is reached, the disaster is nearly complete, and the scheme is bankrupt. The more sophisticated advocates of inflation in brief are disingenuous. They do not state their case with complete candor, and they end by deceiving even themselves. They begin to talk of paper money like the more naive inflationists, as if it were itself a form of wealth that could be created at will on the printing press. They even solemnly discuss a multiplier by which every dollar printed and spent by the government becomes magically the equivalent of several dollars added to the wealth of the country. For inflation throws a veil of illusion over every economic process. 
it confuses and deceives almost everyone, including even those who suffer by it. We are all accustomed to measuring our income and wealth in terms of money. The mental habit is so strong that even professional economists and statisticians cannot consistently break it. It is not easy to see relationships always in terms of real goods and real welfare. Who among us does not feel richer and prouder when he's told that our national income has doubled, in terms of dollars, of course, compared with some pre-inflationary period? He is, of course, not blind to the rise in the cost of living, but neither is he as fully aware of his real position as he would have been if his cost of living had not changed, and if his money salary had been reduced to give him the same reduced purchasing power that he now has in spite of his salary increase because of higher prices. Inflation is the auto-suggestion, the hypnotism, the anesthetic that has dulled the pain of the operation for him. Inflation is the opium of the people." Unquote. With simple, elegant, and logical analytical explanations, Hazlitt connects the dots between inflation, deficit spending, debt, and taxation, which we actually should have comprehended as children. Quote, Deficit spending, once embarked upon, creates powerful, vested interests which demand its continuance under all conditions. If no honest attempt is made to pay off the accumulated debt and resort is had to outright inflation instead, then the results follow that we have already described. For the country as a whole cannot get anything without paying for it. Inflation itself is a form of taxation. It is perhaps the worst possible form which usually bears hardest on those least able to pay. On the assumption that inflation affected everyone and, and everything evenly, which we have seen is never true, it would be tantamount to a flat sales tax of the same percentage of all commodities with the rate as high on bread and milk as on diamonds and furs. Or it might be thought of as equivalent to a flat tax of the same percentage without exemptions on everyone's income. It is a tax not only on every individual's expenditures, but on its savings account and life insurance. It is, in fact, a flat capital levy, without exemptions, in which the poor man pays as high a percentage as the rich man. But the situation is even worse than this, because, as we have seen, inflation does not and cannot affect everyone evenly. Some suffer more than others. The poor may be more heavily taxed by inflation in percentage terms than the rich, for inflation is a kind of tax that is out of control of the tax authorities. It strikes wantonly in all directions. The rate of tax imposed by inflation is not a fixed one. It cannot be determined in advance. We know what, is, what it is today, we do not know what it will be tomorrow, and tomorrow we shall not know what it will be on the day after. Like every other tax, 
Inflation Acts to determine the individual and business policies we are all forced to follow. It discourages all prudence and thrift. It encourages squandering, gambling, reckless waste of all kinds. It often makes it more profitable to speculate than to produce. It tears apart the whole fabric of stable economic relationships. It is inexcusable injustices drive man toward desperate remedies. It plants the seeds of fascism and communism. It leads man to demand totalitarian controls. It ends invariably in bitter dissolution and collapse. Unquote. So, now let us go back to the question of the criminal nature of inflation. But before we talk about your hard-earned inflationary fiat money, a comparison to the counterfeiting of other products such as gold is important for further understanding. Counterfeiting is naturally fraud, a highly criminal offense. When a counterfeiter mints brass or dilutes a gold coin with other inferior metals and sells them as gold, he cheats the seller of whatever goods he purchases with the brass or whatever metal. Every subsequent buyer and seller of the inferior and cheaper metal is cheated in turn. But it will be instructive to examine the precise process of the fraud and see how not only the purchasers of the brass, but everyone else is defrauded and loses by the counterfeit. You understand now that the process of inflation, printing more money or lending out of your bank deposits as credits with a much higher ratio intercirculation, is done systematically by all commercial banks, which is literally what counterfeiting is. It steals from and injures all the legitimate existing fiat money holders by having their purchasing power diluted. In short, counterfeiting defrauds and injures not only the specific holders of the new money, coins, cash, digital fiat money, but all holders of old money, meaning everyone else in society. As Rothbard describes it nicely, quote, counterfeiting and the resulting inflation is therefore a process by which some people, the early holders of the new money, benefit at the expense, for example, they expropriate the late receivers. The first, earliest, and largest net gainers are, of course, the counterfeiters themselves. Thus, we, are, we see that when new money comes into the economy as counterfeiting, is a, it is a method of fraudulent gain at the expense of the rest of society and especially of relatively fixed income groups. Inflation is a process of subtle expropriation where the victims understand that prices have gone up, but now why, but now why this has happened? And the inflation of counterfeiting does not even confer the benefit of adding to the non-monetary uses of the money commodity." Unquote. Rothbard concludes logically, quote, government is supposed to apprehend counterfeiters and duly break up and punish their operations. But what if 
government itself turns counterfeiter. In that case, there is no hope of combating this activity by inventing superior detection devices. The difficulty is far greater than that." Unquote. The fact is that commercial banks, meaning fractional reserve banks, create money out of thin air. They do the same thing as counterfeiters, because counterfeiters too create money out of thin air by printing something called money or as a warehouse receipt for money. This is how the banks extract resources from the public, from the people with the hard-earned money, having worked hard for it. Fraction reserve banks counterfeit warehouse receipts for money, which then circulate as equivalent to money among the public. There is one exception to the total balance of the legal system. The law fails to treat the receipts as counterfeit. Now, the logical and legitimate question arises for every bank depositor like yourself, what happens if there is a bank run, all depositors demanding the money at the same time? Rothbard put it in another way with his words, quote, a bank is always inherently bankrupt and would actually become so if its depositors all woke up to the fact that the money they believe to be available on demand is actually not there." Unquote. A very short historical insight. As late as World War I, the general public in Western world rarely used bank deposits, because most transactions were settled in cash, and workers received cash rather than bank checks for wages and salaries. After World War II, under the force of decades of special support and privilege of government, checking accounts became used nearly worldwide. Due to this change, a bank can issue fraudulent and inflationary warehouse receipts just as easily in the form of open book deposits as it can in banknotes. Effectively, the bank, instead of printing fraudulent, uncovered banknotes worth your, your deposited money and lending them to a loan borrower, it can simply open up a new larger account for the borrower and credit him with a specified amount, thereby at the stroke of a pen, and, is, and as if by magic, increasing the money supply in the country by the same amount. As Rothbard said, Quote, in the real world, as fractional reserve banking was allowed to develop, the rigid separation between deposit banking and loan banking was no longer maintained in what came to be known as commercial banks. The banks accepted deposits, loaned out its equity and, it, and the money it borrowed, and also created notes or deposits out of thin air, which it loaned out to to its borrowers. On the balance sheet, all these items and activities were jumbled together. Part of a bank's activity was the legitimate and productive lending of saved or borrowed funds, but most of it was the fraudulent and inflationary creation of a fraudulent warehouse receipt and hence a money surrogate out of thin air to be loaned out at interest." Unquote. So, the following legal, criminal, and contractual questions 
are inevitable for you as a depositor. Are the banks allowed to be debtors to the depositors and note holders rather than Baileys retaining someone else's property for safekeeping? If the banks were to be treated like any other business and the governmental regulation were to be applied equally to banks, then the banks must pay their debts promptly or else be declared insolvent and be put out of business. But unfortunately, this system of free banking is not the reality of the truth. Without going into the details of explanation, let it be said in Rothbard's words, quote, the mere existence of bank competition will provide a powerful continuing day-to-day -day constraint on fractional reserve credit expansion. Free banking, even where fractional reserve banking is legal and not punished as fraud, will scarcely permit fractional reserve inflation to exist, much less to flourish and proliferate. Free banking, far from leading to inflationary chaos, will ensure almost as hard and non-inflationary a money as 100% reserve banking itself." Unquote. Fact is that continuing, never-ending fear of a bank run will provide a healthy checks and balances on inflationary bank operations, even though the bank run allows for a considerable amount of credit expansion and bank inflation before retribution arrives. It happens long after inflation has caught hold and the damage can be felt. Free banking, then, will inevitably be a system of hard money and virtually no inflation. The reality, in contrast, is the ruling central banking structure and its essential purpose is to use government privilege to remove the limitations of free banking on monetary and bank credit inflation. The central bank is one way or another inclusion or working tightly together with the government, be it owned, controlled, and or operated by the government. Whatever the circumstances, the central bank receives from the government the monopoly privilege for issuing banknotes or cash, while other privately owned commercial banks are only permitted to issue demand liabilities in the form of checking deposits. In some cases, the government treasury itself issues paper money as well, but usually the central bank is given the unique privilege of issuing paper money in the form of banknotes, for example, Federal Reserve notes. It is indeed a perverted condition that the entire financial system is made to depend on the supervision of the state, quote, which hysterically has been the first to benefit from profits obtained through the non-fulfillment of the safekeeping obligation in the monetary deposit contract, as can be read in Jesus Huerta de Soto, Money, Bank Credit and Economic Cycles from the year 2012. Whatever the degree of illegitimate and criminal the government has proven to manifest through the sanctioning and the de facto legalization of the central bank's cause damages, it seems at the end of the day that the, quote, the authorities can legalize any institution, 
no matter how legally monstrous it may seem. Jesus Hueto de Soto, Money, Bank, Credit, and Economic Cycles. Again, it should be clear that even under central banking, if the public is unwilling to hold any money in bank deposits or notes and insists on using only gold, the inflationary potential of the banking system will be severely limited. Even if the public insists on holding banknotes rather than deposits, fractional reserve bank expansion will be highly limited. The more the public is willing to hold checking accounts rather than cash, the greater the inflationary potential of the central banking system. Yet, what if the feared bank run becomes reality and many or all depositors demand redemption either in gold or in central banknotes, as this kind of bank happened under the American banking system until 1933? In contrast to free banking, the central bank, as a land of last resort, stands ready at all times to lend its powerful prestige and resources. As we have seen many times, the central bank stands ready to bail out banks in trouble, to provide them with reserves by purchasing their assets or lending them reserves. In essence, the central bank serves exactly this purpose as a global central banking cartel. The central banks coordinate the banks so that they can evade the restrictions of free markets and free banking and inflate uniformly together, which is more than welcome and lobbied for by the banks. It is their permanent ticket to inflation and easy money. The only remaining limitation on credit inflation is the legal or traditional minimum reserve ratio of a bank a bank keeps of total reserves or total deposits. In the United States since the Civil War, these minimal fractions are called legal reserve requirements. The decisive factors of the money supply under central banking are reserve requirements and total reserves. The central bank can determine the amount of money supply at any time by manipulating and controlling either the reserve requirements and or the total of reserves of the commercial banks. The logical deduction, one method for the central bank to inflate bank money and the money supply is to lower the fractional reserve requirement. Raising reserve requirements then is contractionary and deflationary. Lowering them is inflationary. The day-to-day -day instrument of the Federal Reserve is the control and fixing of the money supply and to determine total bank reserves. The focus, should be put, the focus should be to put an end to inflation. All that needs to be done is that governments freeze, better abolish, central banking altogether. If that seems to be so hard, then, as a traditional step, the central bank should be prevented from making further loans or especially open market purchases. It is this simple, but you can imagine why it is not done. The controversy amongst the free banking advocates and central bank promoters. De Soto, Jesus Huerta de Soto, in his book Money, Bank Credit and Economic Cycles, explains 
in the context of the so-called controversy between free banking advocates and central bank promoters. Quote, First, a free banking system, by its very nature, even under optimal conditions, would be prone to occasional isolated bank crisis which would harm customers and holders of banknotes and deposits. Therefore, under such circumstances, there is a need for an official central bank with the power to step in to protect note holders and depositors in the event of a crisis. This argument is clearly paternalistic and aimed at justifying the existence of a central bank. It ignores the fact that when support is provided to those hit by crisis, in the long run, such support merely tends to further hamper the smooth running of the banking system, which requires constant and active supervision and confidence in, on the part of the public. Supervision is relaxed and confidence bolstered what the general public takes for granted, the intervention of the central bank to avoid any damages in the case of a bank failure. Moreover, bankers actually tend to exercise bank support should they need it. Hence, it is quite credible that the existence of a central bank tends to aggravate banks' crisis, as has been revealed even recently in several cases. The deposit insurance system in many countries has played a major role in fostering perverse behavior among bankers and in facilitating and aggravating bank crisis. Nevertheless, from a political standpoint, the above paternalistic argument can become extremely influential, even nearly irresistible in a democratic environment. At any rate, this first argument marks the beginning of the false start in the free banking central banking debate in the sense that the argument would be meaningless if traditional legal principles were respected and a 100% reserve requirement were re-established for banking. Under these conditions, no harm would be done to holders of banknotes and deposits, who would always be able to withdraw the money regardless of the fate of the bank. There, the paternalistic argument that a central bank is necessary to protect the interests of injured parties makes no sense. If we follow the logic of a fractional reserve banking system, this first argument in favor of a central bank is at least very doubtful while in the context of a free banking system, based on traditional legal principles and a 100% reserve requirement, it is completely irrelevant. De Soto continues, quote, Experience has shown that far from diffusing economic crisis, the advent of the central bank has exerted them, in contrast, the existence of a central bank, a lend of last resort, may prolong the process of credit and monetary expansion much further in relation to the independent process which would be set in motion in a frank, in the free banking system. It is impossible to ignore the contradiction inherent in the institution of the central bank, which was theoretically created to curb monetary expansion, maintain economic stability, and prevent crisis, but which, in practice, is devoted to providing new liquidity on a massive scale when banks face crisis and panics. 
if we also consider political influences and the inflationary processes and their distortion of the productive structure have been aggravated and the historical result has been much more severe and profound economic crisis and recessions than those which would have arisen in a free banking system. Therefore, we can conclude that this second argument in favor of the central bank is groundless, since the very existence of the central bank tends to exacerbate economic crisis and recessions. There is no doubt that crises and recessions provide politicians and technocrats with an ideal opportunity to orchestrate central bank intervention. Therefore, it is obvious that the very existence of a fractional reserve banking system invariably leads to the emergence of a central bank as a lender of last resort. Until traditional legal principles are re-established, along with a 100% reserve requirement in banking, it will be practically inconceivable for the central bank to disappear. In other words, it will inevitably arise and endure. Therefore, it is paradoxical to claim that the correct treatment of economic and bank crisis depends on the existence of a central bank, when the central bank is ultimately the main culprit in dragging out an exacerbating crisis. The only way to end this vicious cycle circle, is to recognize that the origin of the entire problem lies in fractional reserve banking. Unquote. With this knowledge and understanding, I can totally agree with De Soto that the simple re-establishment of general and sound legal principles, meaning 100% reserve requirement, would prevent a free banking system from causing any negative effects on economic processes, and only with this simple principle of 100% reserve requirement, the most common excuse and pretext for creating a central bank would disappear. We will learn later on why the decentralized network consensus-based and trustless architecture, do not trust but verify, of the hardest money, medium of exchange, store of value, and unit of account, Bitcoin, makes this whole exhaustive discussion about fractional reserve banking with whatever intellectual academic doctrines and nuances, free banking system, currency school, etc., 100% reserve requirement, and the inherent cry for the establishment of a central bank obsolete forever. This is to be continued in part two with the title, The Criminal Nature of Fractional Reserve Banking and credit expansion.